Just because you have, you know, a camera and an editing setup, you need to have the technique to connect what you're trying to do to an audience. And I think, that, I think that's one of the greatest concerns I see with young and first-time filmmakers is they're so hot to trot on an idea for a film, but they don't think about who that film is for. My name is Yanis Balotis, and welcome back to Filmmaker Stories Season 2. We have a bunch of exciting guests on the podcast over the coming weeks. And first up is festival director, film consultant, author and producer John Gunn. Based in Washington, D.C., one of John's first short film projects, Cyberslot, took the festival circuit by storm, playing over 60 festivals around the world. Yet, here's a man who has claimed he's not a great filmmaker. John takes pride in connecting people and being problem solver. After his own disheartening experience of film festivals, John started the DC Short Film Festival in 2003, which was a huge success, becoming the largest short film festival in the US. John has since consulted on festivals around the world and found several others, including the Sunderland Short Film Festival here in the UK. He is also the author of two books behind the screens, Programmers Reveal How Film Festivals Really Work and So You Want to Start a Film Festival. If you like what you hear, go check them out. For now, let's launch into episode one of the Filmmaker's Story Season 2. I started my career as a graphic designer and marketing person, and I did that for many years. I had my own firm that was very successful, but I was getting bored of it very quickly. And in 1998 or so, at the beginning of the digital video revolution, I decided to pivot and I wanted to make movies because I was tired of doing work that I thought was great, that clients thought was meh, and work that I thought was junk, that clients thought was fantastic. And I said, well, I want to make movies. And, you know, they go to a theater and they're 20 feet tall. They're going to see I'm a genius. Um, and of course, I go to film school and I make two films. One is my opus that I spend all my time on and people are like, meh. And then I make, you know, a little editing exercise piece of junk that ends up playing like 50 film festivals and, and winning awards. So that's when uh, a very wise teacher told me to stop overthinking everything I did, that when I just sort of let it happen, the natural creativeness comes out. And so I, in 1999, I stopped thinking in general, and that's helped a lot. So, <laughs> but so I started making some short films, uh, and I made one in 2000, I think 2001, uh, called Cyberslot, which is at the time was very controversial. It was about finding sex on the internet, and it ended up playing about 65 festivals around the world. And I took a year off and traveled with the film, and I was really disheartened about film festivals. They seemed to be about money and sponsors and parties, and unless you were a big name, you were nothing. And right after 9-11, there was a festival that was in Ashland, Oregon, the Ashland Independent Film Festival. It was their first year. And maybe it was that post-9-11 kind of sense of community, or maybe it's because they really kind of struck on something that made sense. It was probably the best festival I had been to because it was just about filmmakers getting together and collaborating and sharing and audiences just loved it. So when I came back to D.C., I turned to a friend of mine and I said, uh, I don't know how to start a film festival, but I know what not to do. So we're going to base it on this what not to do premise and what they did kind of in Ashland. And I sort of turned the pyramid upside down. And I said, if we do films and filmmakers right, then the money will come in from sponsors because they're going to be want, want to be part of something that's interesting. And that's happened. Uh, I created the DC Shorts Film Festival. The first year was, you know, it was only three screenings in a single day, but they all sold out. It was, it, it was obvious to me there was a, a desperate need for it. And from there, 
I grew that until, until it became at that time the, the largest short festival in the U.S. So it was great. I left it after I felt that I could do no more with it. I created a festival in the U.K. in, in Sunderland. Uh, I've been consulting since with festivals around the, the world. I have uh, written two books about festivals. But I found myself last year with the COVID pivot, sort of getting out of festivals. I'm still doing some work, but I went back into film production for the first time in 20 years. So now I'm producing films again. So it's, it's all come full circle. It's, it's a lot of fun. I asked John to take me through his journey and thoughts of the film industry. For aspiring filmmakers out there, listen out for some top tips before you even put pen to paper. So this is what I've seen in the past 20 years or so. When I first started, you know, it was, the, it was sort of the beginning of digital video and cameras were still incredibly, professional cameras were still expensive. My first camera was $2,500, which now I look at my cell phone and I'm thinking that camera is like infinitely better than my $2,500 camera that I was so proud to have owned. There were, you know, at the landscape at the time, there were much fewer festivals. There were maybe a thousand festivals worldwide. Now we're, you know, up to like seven or 8,000. People got into filmmaking because it was a creative pursuit, but it wasn't necessarily an academic pursuit. And now it seems to be a huge industry for colleges and universities. Film departments are huge profit centers because they're attractive to students, but they're not really, in my opinion, they're not really teaching what you need to become a, a real filmmaker or a storyteller, which is what filmmaking is, is it's visual storytelling. And they're concentrating on a lot of stuff that isn't necessarily important, and therefore they're graduating a lot of people who I don't think necessarily have talent or haven't been able to develop the talent they need. Most of the kids I meet that go to film school, they, they all want to be the next big director. And I'm like, but you know, there's an industry in which the director is just one person of a crew of you know, 400. There's 399 other jobs that are probably, you're probably going to work every day as opposed to one project every few years. So why don't you consider another aspect of the industry? And I have a real issue with the film schools cranking out kids who don't really know what they're doing. They go back into academia and then next thing you know, they're teaching. And I'm like, wait, you don't know what you're doing. So how can you teach the next generation? Meanwhile, they don't want to hire people who have been in the industry and have experience because they don't have MFAs and advanced degrees. It's a racket I have a real problem with. You know, before I got into filmmaking, I was a graphic designer. And it was, again, the beginning of sort of this desktop publishing, this, uh, this idea that if you had a computer, all of a sudden you could create text and graphics that looked like what professional agencies used to pay a lot of money to do. And everyone started creating newsletters and you know, their own ads, but they weren't necessarily effective because they didn't really have the tools or the techniques or the knowledge, the marketing knowledge to really hit the market or hit the audience as they needed to hit. Just because you had the technology doesn't mean you have the ability to make that happen. And I say, see the same thing in filmmaking. Just because you have you know, a camera and an editing setup, you need to have the technique to connect what you're trying to do to an audience. And I think, that, I think that's one of the greatest concerns I see with young and first-time filmmakers is they're so hot to trot on an idea for a film, but they don't think about who that film is for. I think because there's so many potential outlets Everyone thinks that they can pick up a camera, pick up their phone and shoot a few things and call it a film, but it isn't necessarily a film. A film is a well thought out, crafted story that is, should be designed to entertain and inspire. And I think that uh, it's too easy just to produce something, but not something good. And so I see a lot of people who are struggling because they're, they're just quick to produce something and people say, you know, you know, their mother says it's fantastic. 
but then they try to get it out into the festival world or out for distribution and no one wants it. And I think that before you even put down pen to paper and start writing your script, the first thing you have to do is identify who you want to tell the story to. And when you figure that out and you know who you think is going to watch your film, that helps out with your distribution and your festival strategy from the very beginning. Because you sort of know, well, I'm going after 25 to 30-year-old males who play games. Well, then film festivals is not the solution for you because they're not the ones going to film festivals, right? You know, you need to reach them through Twitch or some other platform if that's who you want to reach. Here's where John's festival expertise kick in. If you're stuck in a rut submitting to festivals and not getting anywhere, it's time to get proactive and festival savvy. Every festival is completely different. I know young filmmakers think that all festivals are alike, but every single festival has their own audience and their own niche. This is why cities can have a dozen or two dozen film festivals, because each one speaks to a different segment of the population. And, you know, you might say, well, this film might be might play great in New York, but to who in New York? I mean, New York Film Festival A and New York Film Festival B have completely different audiences. You need to know that before you start submitting. And sometimes it's just production values or sometimes it's the story isn't good. And sometimes it's because they're doing something that they thought was ironic or farcical, but it's not really well done enough to be ironic or farcical. More likely, it's a story that's been told a ton of times before, even that current year, and just not as well done as someone else who's telling that same story. I find that to be a big problem. I always see that issue. When I was programming when I program festivals, I might see the same story four or five times. But, you know, you can only show that story once to an audience. And so which one are you going to tell? Or which one are you going to show? The, the six-minute com- comedic version, the 20-minute dramatic version, you know, the documentary version of it? Or... And the, th- the other thing is I would start small. You know, your, f- your film doesn't have a shelf life of a few months. It has a shelf life of a good 18 months. And so try to get into some of the festivals you think are the most appropriate fit. And if they're not getting into those festivals, then figure out why. Start talking to programmers and go, I thought this film was perfect for you. Why did you pass on it? You know, and and say, I want the honest truth. And maybe it's because your film just isn't good. Maybe it's because your film doesn't fit into what the zeitgeist is of what they're programming that year. The the film I just produced didn't get into a film that I thought was a shoo-in. I mean, I know the people who run the festival and I know what they program and I used to work at the festival and I was kind of shocked. And then I realized they told me it's because most of the docs that they were showing were much more about social justice and legal issues and racism. And my film didn't fit in with that at all. It's a happy biography piece, right? And so I, I get it. Maybe in another year, the film would have been programmed without thought, but because of what they're trying to show this year, it just doesn't fit into what they're programming. I I like to say that festivals don't program the best films. The best films that are are made first available to us that fit with our programming style, that challenge an audience, that fit within time constraints, are are unique, are well-crafted, that are made by filmmakers sometimes that have appeared at that festival before because festivals like to promote the talent that they sort of have discovered and want to perpetuate and are made by nice filmmakers. I have to tell you, if you're a filmmaker and you go to a festival and you act like a complete jerk, that gets around really fast and no one wants to invite you to a festival. To me, the greatest compliments I used to get when I was running DC Shorts was, uh, not that it was a great event and I had a good time, 
but it was the filmmakers who would call me back a year or two later and say, hey, do you remember me? I ended up meeting this other filmmaker at the festival and the two of us are now producing a new film. Like to me, that was like the ultimate success that I created or I gave someone the space to feel that they could collaborate with someone else and create new work. That to me was what it was all about. And as a filmmaker, your job is constantly A, to market yourself, to get the word out to who you are and what type of work you're, try you're trying to create and trying to build your own audience because that will help you with whatever you do in the future. And your job is to meet other people. You can't go to a film festival and be a wallflower. Uh, with virtual, it's a lot more difficult, but most festivals are trying their best to have special filmmaker lounges and places where you, one can meet. You're usually programmed in a, for sure, it's programmed in a block with some others, and there's usually some sort of recorded Q&A. Participate in that Q&A, even if you're frightened to, to do so. Participate, because you will hear the stories of others, and you might be able to connect with someone, again, to collaborate in the future. To me, that's what, it's, that's what it's really all about. It's about making those connections and furthering your career. Are you someone who is wary of the virtual ship the film industry and events are taking? John encourages you not to be. I know a lot of people feel like the work is actually making the film, but that's the easiest part of the entire process. The, the real work is getting it out in the world. And you really have to, you know, it's interesting. I, I've been talking to a lot of filmmakers this past year who were very concerned about going virtual as opposed to being in physical spaces. And it wasn't even like the piracy issue. It was more like, is it prestigious enough to be virtual? And I said, who did you make a movie? Why, why did you make a movie? Did you make it to sit on a shelf for no one to watch? Or did you make it for people to watch? This is how people are watching stuff now. And this is how people will be watching films into the future. And so I, I think virtual platforms for film festivals are here to stay. I mean, I've been trying to get festivals to do this for 15, 20 years. So <laughs> if a festival wants to program you in the future in a virtual setting as opposed to a physical setting, it's not a slight. It's because they know that your film will play to that audience that's going to buy a virtual ticket, which is an important audience for them to attract to. So how are film festivals changing? And what is the future of the festival circuit looking like? Here's how John sees it. Festivals have changed, well, had really changed in the past year, but I think they've been changing for some time. I think the idea of recognition has changed. When I left TC Shorts, I ran a small, uh, an organization called the Cine Golden Eagle Awards. They had been around for 60 years but it, they were in their death throes. And part of it was because they couldn't keep up with the changing award environment that was out there. When they started, there were very few film awards. There was them and the Oscars and like two others, and that was it. But now there are every variety, Hollywood Reporter, all the big media, they all have their own awards. There's the Spirit Awards, there's the Indie Awards, there's the these, everyone's got an award show. And so how do you compete with that? How do you create a niche and we really spent a lot of time trying to think, what is recognition today? Is recognition getting up on a, some sort of gala event in which you sit in an audience and your name is called, and you go to a stage and you make a speech? Is that recognition? Or is recognition promoting the best works possible via social media and giving them sort of like a mini social media campaign for two weeks to try and get the word out to a different type of audience as opposed to, again, walking up on a stage and picking up a trophy? I mean, is trophy recognition or is getting your name out to people who had never heard of you before recognition. And I think that festivals are it's sort of at this point now too, who are they serving and why are they serving them? And this has been a lot of soul searching for a lot of festivals in the past year to sort of think about that. 
you know, who is their audience specifically? Why does their audience go to their event? Did they used to go to the physical festival because they enjoyed going to parties and being with one another? Or did they go because they liked films and they would watch them regardless of what type of venue they were in? And I think a lot of festivals have realized that there's two separate audiences for that. There's the audience that love to actually stand in line and wait and talk to other people. I used to love that. That was my favorite part of festivals. And there's a group that's that, and there's a group that goes because they really want to see a diverse range of films that they can't really see anywhere else. Although that's kind of changing because those films that you used to be not able to see anywhere else, you can now see online. So that's that's all changed. And I, so I think the festivals are figuring out where they fit in this ecosystem of distribution, especially as the big studios now have found that, wow, we can just release stuff online and we can actually sell fewer tickets and make more money because we're not paying distributors and everyone else. We're just going straight to your TV set. I think even as theaters open up in the next year, I think we're still going to see a change in how films are distributed and how people are watching them. Because I don't think people are going to go back to theaters in the droves they were going in before. In talking to other programmers, there was definitely a, a decrease in submissions last year for a lot of reasons. I think a lot of filmmakers who had bigger name films were holding off for 2021 to be in a physical theater. I think it wasn't until beginning of 2021 that a lot of them started acquiescing and going, it's time to get this thing distributed, even if it's virtual. And I think that filmmakers, it's sort of a double-edged sword. For some festivals, there's more opportunity to be seen because by going virtual, you could have more screenings you would have in a physical theater. In a physical theater, you can only have six to eight physical screenings in a day. And now virtual, you could have a lot more. But again, the audiences are getting fatigued also. You can only sit in front of your computer screen or your TV set so many hours in a day. And so while a festival might be able to now show 300 short films as opposed to 100 short films, is the audience really going to want to watch that much more than they watched before? So, you know, it was funny when I programmed DC Shorts, we never had thematic screenings. Like we never had like a docs program and a comedy program. We Everything was like a, it was a mixed bag. I used to call it the tapas plate. You know, you would see a little bit of everything. Because my feeling was audiences weren't coming to see a specific genre. They were coming at the time that was convenient to them, right? I can go to a movie tonight at seven o'clock, therefore I'm going to go to that screening. Uh, it wasn't to say they were going for a specific film. You know, audiences only have so much time to watch in general. Virtually, it doesn't mean they're going to watch four screenings because it's available to them. They're probably just going to watch two screenings because they still have life. VOD seems to be a touchy issue with filmmakers, even more so over the past year of cinema closures. John talks about some of the challenges filmmakers will face as streaming continues to take over, how to plan ahead and move with the times. You have a lot of established filmmakers who are afraid of VOD and streaming because they're still thinking that the system is going to go back to what it was. Forward-thinking filmmakers are realizing we're never going back to what it was. And so how, do, how can I be flexible to move forward along with the industry? I think this next year of submissions is going to be really interesting for a lot of reasons. I think that uh, as festivals go to these hybrid events in which they're going to have in-person screenings and virtual screenings, filmmakers are going to be jockeying to be in one part or the other. It might be feel slighted if they are not shown in person and only shown online, to which I think is, is crap. I, I think that it's just your film is just as worthy and just as important to that festival if you're being shown virtually and not in a theater, especially that that festival, it might not seem as prestigious, but it is just as prestigious. It is no less prestigious. Up until two years ago, everyone was very concerned about being sold to Amazon or, or Netflix. That seemed to be like the pinnacle of 
getting a VOD deal. But those deals aren't happening anymore. Netflix is producing their own content. They're buying very little or they're buying stuff at the beginning stages and then producing it. And Amazon just announced that they're no longer taking indie films. So whatever was there before is still on the platform, but they're not buying or they're not even taking any you know, video on demand that's self-published. So that whole landscape has completely changed too. And I think that as that morphs in the next year or so, we're going to see some even more changes. But I also think that at some point, there's going to be too many streaming platforms for audiences to wrap their heads around. I mean, as it is, there's dozens. And, you know, I love film, but I don't want to subscribe to 15 different platforms at a different price each. So I think that that's going to think suss itself out eventually. Every day it changes. And you're right, it's impossible to know what's going to happen tomorrow. So as a savvy filmmaker, you're, you should just know what you think your plan should be and try to stick to as, as, as close as possible and move on and be ready to pivot if needed. And also be ready to throw in the towel at times to go, it's time to move on to the next thing. I've exhausted this film for all I can exhaust it for. So what else is on the cards for John since he has decided to transition back into the film production? I, I don't really know what tomorrow is going to hold. Uh, this, this whole year of pivoting has been really interesting. Again, I went from one day I had a year and a half worth of film festival consulting contracts and the next day I had none of them. So the pivot to film production wasn't one I took lightly because I, I really didn't want to get back into it. But I'm actually finding that as a producer and not a director, I'm having a lot more fun. I've always been a great connector. I'm a good storyteller, but I'm not a great, I have always known I'm not a great storyteller, but I've been really a fantastic producer. I'm, and I'm really enjoying it because it's puzzle pieces and connecting and putting it all together and wheeling and dealing and whining and dining. And I, I'm good at that. So I'm now finding, looking for my next big project to produce. I will probably end up doing another short with the same director I just worked with, a third project with her uh, that she's had in the works for a few years. And I'm now reading scripts and concepts for a feature that I will produce. I'm actually enjoying documentary work more than I thought I would. In fact, I tried to make a documentary once. It was a disaster because I just realized I didn't have the editing brain for it. But producing-wise, I definitely have the producing brain for it. So we'll see. But I think this next year is going to be full of some new projects to produce and hopefully some new events. So that's all for today's episode. Check out the podcast notes if you would like to reach out to John. And of course, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media so you don't miss out on the next episode. There are more amazing guests to come. Till next time.